Hello and welcome to this very special episode of So Important, the Interview Podcast. Today, we're celebrating the 50th episode of this little experiment. I'm probably as surprised as all of you, but here we are. And it is a very special episode indeed. Today, I am with four distinguished gentlemen who are all alumni of the So Important Podcast. And even better, they all share an appreciation for the legendary longtime drummer of the Rolling Stones, the inimitable Charlie Watts. Chris McKittrick has authored a book on the Rolling Stones, Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York, which we discussed in episode 23. In that book, Chris writes about Charlie and his passion for visiting the New York jazz clubs, going all the way back to the very earliest days of the Rolling Stones. Gary Graff is a Detroit-based, prolific, and distinguished music journalist and author who has contributed to or written numerous books on rock and roll icons, including a biography of Bruce Springsteen that has been called Definitive. We talked to Gary about the evolving music scene way back in episode five. I think it's safe to say that Gary has seen a lot of drummers and heard a lot of bands, and he will bring a critical perspective on what makes Charlie so special. Jim Wilson. What can I say about the great Jim Wilson? We visited with Jim back in episode seven. Jim has played and toured with Daniel Lenoir, Sparks, Henry Rollins, and Emily Harris, to name just a few. And he plays scorching guitar for the seminal LA band Motor Sister. But listen to Jim's solo material. The Stones' influence comes through loud and clear. He has recently recorded with Bernard Fowler, who sings backup with the Stones themselves. And last but not least, the Charlie Watts guru himself, Mike Edison, is with us. Mike recently wrote a highly acclaimed book all about Charlie entitled Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters. We discussed the book in episode 28. Mike is also a drummer and an accomplished author of numerous books and articles, and it's great to have Mike back with us. That's a pretty impressive crew, but this episode is about celebrating the life and legacy of Charlie Watts. And gentlemen, let's get this thing started and welcome to the show. Great to be here. All, right. all you guys, all you guys rule. I'm a fan of all you guys. <laughs> Gary Graff, my ex-wife is from Detroit, so I'd always read your articles and from Detroit too. Nice to oh, see you guys. Good to see you. Let me start things off just by saying that I'm thrilled to have all of you with me today for this conversation. Charlie is a subject near and dear to all of our hearts, and it will be great fun to explore his legacy with all of you. But let's start by talking about his music, and I'm going to ask a seemingly straightforward question, which is this. Could the Rolling Stones have been the Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts? And if you agree that the answer is no, why is that the case? And Mike, I know that you have some thoughts about this. All right, why not? And this goes directly to the question of what makes a group a, a group. It's Mick and Keith and Charlie and Bill Wyman was very important to this mix too. And of course, Brian Jones at the very beginning. Like I say, you know, hydrogen's pretty happening and oxygen's pretty cool, but you put them together and then you can swing. You know, this is the sum of the parts being greater than the whole. And without Charlie Watts, you don't get that swing. You don't get that friction. You don't get that wobble. You don't sound like the Rolling Stones. They're talented guys. Would they have been a good band without Charlie Watts, perhaps? But they certainly wouldn't have been this band without Charlie Watts. Jim, they had like a different, you know, a different drummer from one of the other bands, say uh, the Kinks drummer, Mick Avery or something. It would have been good, but Charlie understood those songs and he understood simplicity and groove 
And I don't think it would, would have been the same without them. They might have ended up getting, you know, some session guy to do better drum work on the tracks. And, you know, it's always good to know that you could tell it's Charlie Watts as soon as he starts playing. Yeah, I'm trying not to be a Charlie Watts dogmatist, you know, <laughs> uh, about it. But the truth is, without Charlie, there's no grease. It's a very unique thing. Is very what he does is very very unique. It's very special, and I mean that's how I came to write my book from listening to him. People say, "Mike, how long did it take you to write the book?" And I always say, 45 years," which is about how long I've been playing the drums because it was this mystery that had to be unsolved. Where I, as much as I love Led Zeppelin and uh, or the Meters or, or Booker T and the MGs or a million other things, it wasn't the same puzzle that needed to be solved as the one that Charlie Watts presented to me. I wasn't fascinated with it like these hi-hats opening in these very odd places and the weird swing and the way it related to the rest of the band and the way he was uh, chasing Keith around in circles, you know, versus playing in the pocket. It's very, very different. So yeah, it would have been different. I mean, Mick Avery is a wonderful drummer, but yeah, it ain't the same. Of course, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a weird thing when you find, you know, the square peg to put in the square hole, it, you know, magic happens. Gary, you had something you wanted to say, didn't you? Yeah. I, well, I, I do think that we've had a bit of an example of that this fall with the, the Stones back on the road without Charlie. Uh, Steve Jordan's a tremendous drummer. We all know that. But mm -hmm. he is he's being Steve Jordan playing Charlie Watts. Yeah. And he's he's getting it right. And certainly the show I saw was terrific, but there was that perceptible difference. That Charlie wantedness that made that made Charlie Charlie and made the Stones the Stones, you could you could tell the difference. Here's the Stones with a different drummer and no, it's not the same. It's still good. Is it as good? That's a subjective call. But, you know, we've had, we had that example, too, with the expensive winos. Again, Steve Jordan playing with them and essentially coming from a Rolling Stones route. But that was mm -hmm. a great example of what a different drummer can do with that route. And this is uh, Chris McKittrick, uh, author of Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, uh, Rolling Stones in New York City. And I, I just wanted to add to all these, you know, great observations. In the mid 80s, when Charlie wasn't exactly at the top of his game uh, for health reasons, substance abuse reasons. It was one of the many reasons why, you know, Jagger felt that they couldn't tour because Charlie wasn't at the top of his game. And that says a lot about how Mick uh, himself looked at Charlie Watts that, hey, if, if he's not at the top of the game, we're not at the top of the game. We can't do this. And I think that's a really important perspective to bring it in as well. Another part of the value Charlie Watts brings to the whole operation is he's kind of the glue you know, that's holding Mick and Keith together, even when they are at their absolute worst fighting, is that everybody agrees that Charlie's the guy. I mean, even when Keith was like headed to, you know, Dopesville and Keith was, uh, you know, Keith was headed to Dopesville, Mick had his head in the stars and, you know, Los Angeles and trying to be that Mick. Charlie's the guy that's really level-headed and is there for the music and not for any other reason. And I wanted to say to uh, what Gary, I think, was saying about, yeah, I mean, Steve George is doing a great job. They're also playing very big stadiums and a lot of the nuances that I think Charlie Watts would have brought to it aren't as significant. They're not doing the material, they're not recording a new record. They're coming out doing this spectacular Rolling Stones package. And I think Steve Jordan's very capable of putting that over. But what are you really seeing when you're playing to 80,000 people through that kind of sound system and you're watching it on a giant screen anyway? So uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit cynical, but you're losing a little bit of the nuance that Charlie would have brought anyway. And everybody's having oh. a guess. So for all the naysayers, and that includes me, who said, ah, I can't be the Stones without Charlie. I mean, everybody's going out and having a really good time with these gigs and they're getting after everybody stopped clutching their pearls, but Steve was going to sit in for them. Everybody's having a great time.
Jim, Gary, you also talked about what Charlie brought that was something unique and special. But let's drill a little bit down on that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to you, Chris, because one of the things that you talked about very persuasively and effectively in your book was about how Charlie, even in the earliest days, liked to go off and really explore the jazz scene. How did that influence what Charlie ended up ultimately bringing to the Rolling Stones? Well, Charlie Watts, in his soul, he was a lover of jazz. He appreciated jazz, and that's what he loved about music. Arguably, when he got involved in the Stones, he thought of it as just another gig. And so when the Stones would tour, and you know, especially in those early days when Mick and Keith would, and, and Brian would go off and have adventures in clubs or whatever, Charlie would always look for the closest jazz club and go and see what was going on on the scene, what was happening. That was really where his heart was with his music. What I thought was kind of funny in all these obituaries that came out about Charlie Watts talked about how he was a rock and roll drummer who really didn't like rock and roll, which I thought was unfair. That's not really true. It is sort of the idea of where his heart was with his music. He really was into jazz, into boogie-woogie, into that swing that a lot of other rock musicians don't come from that, uh, or rock drummers don't come from that background. That was one of the many reasons that set him apart as a musician. The jazz background allowed Charlie to listen. He, like a lot of jazz musicians, he knew how to listen to those playing around him. And by doing that, he knew how to be in charge of it. You know, he knew he knew what he needed to do, especially, you know, the Stones being as hit and miss as they could be. If you have, you know, Keith, Keith going this way, Ronnie going that way. Uh, you know, Charlie knew exactly where he needed to be in order to make sure the whole thing didn't fall apart. And that, that's where that jazz grounding, I, I thought, really came through and was really of great service to that band. There's another dimension to it that I want to add. And then I want to hear from Jim, who's actually a professional musician. It always seemed to me that he was really locked in with Keith more than Bill, more than anybody else. And that the the jazz part comes from the fact that Keith wasn't a strict regimented Ramones type guitarist. You know, he would he would have his own version of swing and where he wanted to emphasize. And so Charlie's always, you know, a little bit behind the beat. He's always right there trying to follow Keith. And that gives the music that kind of swing and that kind of sway that's really, to me, very unique to the Rolling Stones. Uh, yes. Um, also, like Gary was saying about the jazz thing and listening, uh, I think that that brought the scope because they went through so many things, like just kind of straight R&B to, to psychedelic. I'm sure Charlie wasn't listening to the electric prunes or whatever, you know. And then even to disco and funk and reggae, you know, he always knew what to do. And they, when they would lock in, there's nothing like it. Even if they end up speeding up and, you know, getting an excited track, you know, the records, if you put them at the end of the track, you can see that they're not worried about keeping metronomic time. And again, talking about the Steve Jordan thing, I'll say the same thing about Daryl Jones, though. You know, I went and back and listened to the two box sets of vinyl and started from the beginning and just kind of when you listen to it like that and go from A to Z, I really miss Bill Wyman. And, and you know, I, maybe the songs aren't as good as they used to be. And I'm so happy that they're still doing it. And I didn't go to this past tour either. I feel like if they want to keep playing live and fans want to keep going, then God bless them, you know. But uh, maybe uh, maybe stop the albums, maybe whatever, get the most recent Charlie tracks out. But that's just me. Daryl doesn't play anything like Bill Wyman. He, he just doesn't. I mean, he's he, he's real more on top of the beat. He plays much steadier. He's got a big, fatter, rounder sound. And Bill Wyman is so underrated in the whole history of the sport. Keith's a little bit ahead. Charlie's trying to catch up with Keith. Bill's kind of trying to hold it down, hence the friction, the wobble. 
Also, what you were saying, Jim, is real important is that they, Charlie Watts listens. There's an interplay between what Charlie's doing and the other guys are doing that you don't find in most rock and roll bands. It's more of a jazz thing to have a communication, an open communication during the song between the yeah. drummer and the rest of the band where you respond to what someone else plays in real time. And at the other point you made about being metronomic, that is a myth and a fallacy. There's not a single Rolling Stones track that ends at the same speed it begins. You and I have talked about this, Mike. You know, on the albums, it's a little closer. You can play along, but just about... A couple months ago, I tried to play with a 1978 recording, and uh, it was a live show from Fort Worth. <laughs> right. And after about three minutes, I was lost. And I said, I can't, it's impossible to do this. You have that to. That 78 tour, I think that was the last great, great Rolling Stones tour. It was brutal what they were doing. I mean, I think it was the last time they really had something to prove. You know, all the punk rockers, you know, kind of biting them on the ass and the enemy saying they were over the hill and they were dinosaurs. Of course, they were like, you know, in their 30s. But at the time, yeah, you know, I can really picture 80 year old Bob Dylan or 60 year old Bruce Springsteen coming down the road and still make, doing good work. And they really just came out, you know, loaded for bear. And when you hear them play respectable and whip comes down on that tour, holy mother of God, all things great. And small. I mean, I don't even know what's going on with that high hat. The tempos yeah. are are just relentless. The energy is sling, and they're like, I mean, it was really very, very, very aggressive. And Charlie somehow finds a way to breathe jazz into this whole thing. Really, Watts is just completely unpredictable. Even within these songs that are kind of feel like they're four on the floor, two or three chord, you know, punk rock riffs. I mean, very unpredictable, very difficult to play along with. Please go ahead, Gary. No, I was going to say the magic to me of, Char of Charlie Watts is. He's like a baggy pair of jants, pants pocket. He's not a Calvin Klein pocket. Nothing comes <laughs> yeah. between him and his Calvins. He's He's got the baggy jeans on, so he's going to be able to play anywhere and keep it right and keep the band on track. And, you know, even Ringo was a much tighter kind of drummer, much a you know, much tighter pocket. And Charlie knew how to, how to let it breathe and then f find the spot within that again to be in charge. You know, Mike, I think when you said, Charlie, Chase, and Keith. I think it was, in a way, the other way around. Charlie would make Keith come back to him. You know, Keith hits that big chord, that big open chord, and you're sort of, Charlie, he kind of almost speeds up before I even get to the one of the song just coming in on it. I was listening with Kenny Aronoff, uh, uh, who I'd worked with a little bit and did little mini transcriptions for me, and we were doing uh, the beginning of... Um, Sad, 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 one of her later songs, which I think was a great track. And you know, you're this king. I actually think it's Mick playing the guitar, but it's Mick pretending to be Keith. So whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but then Charlie and, and Kenny said, you know what, if I played like that, I'd get fired. And he said it with awe and admiration. He goes, no one would ever let me play the drums like that. So they'd stop the tape and start over. I mean, and we tried to write it down. And, and it's like there's an accent on like the and of three and then another one on two. And then this all happens in not even in a complete bar of music. So much is happening that's fundamentally wrong and it's awesome that's why we love it yeah i know yeah it's just trying to catch up or not get behind or get ahead all at the same time and it feels like it's kind of falling down the stairs but it lands on its feet it's it's, it's an amazing thing but i yeah. think it really speaks to what the rolling stones are about that they can play jumping jack flash five thousand times but it's never going to be quite the same and charlie never would play the same thing but it gets me thinking about something which is that in this group can understand the jazz influence, the swing, the openness, the giving it some space, the improvisational aspects. But what amazes me about Charlie is that even if you put all that aside and you just listen to the music, this guy is a kick-ass rock and roll drummer. Sometimes when I read this stuff about all the jazz, I think people forget to really talk about that. I mean, just take a listen to Respectable. You can't do better rock and roll drumming than Respectable.
think people appreciate it. They just they just don't say it enough and maybe don't recognize it at the time. When people have the image of the rock and roll drummer in their head, they're thinking of a Keith Moon, a John Bonham, you know, go a little later, like a Tommy Lee, you know, kind of thing. They're not thinking of this guy that is one of the most impeccably dressed individuals on the planet. But then when he goes on stage, he's wearing a T-shirt and just like a pair of slacks. Compared to a lot of other drummers, a small kit, he broke the mold that later became the rock and roll drummer. And I think that's why so many times people run for the jazz thing first. Oh, because he's a jazz drummer. But then they, again, and I, and I, like I said in the obituaries when they said that, and I read a couple of them, drummer of the world's greatest rock and roll band who doesn't actually like rock and roll. It goes, well, that's, that's not really fair because he is uh, an amazing rock drummer. He's just more than that. Yeah, and he think, loved rock and roll. He really did. Yes. Uh, I think it's very glib and very easy for writers to say, oh, he was the guy that liked rock and roll. He was a jazz guy. And I think a lot of the guys writing that are guys who don't play the drums or don't play rock and roll themselves and have somehow driven right past the obvious, which is that if you accept that the Rolling Stones were at one point the greatest rock and roll band in the world, clearly he was the greatest rock and roll drummer in the world for at least that very moment. And that the Rolling Stones were in their heyday in 72 were considered a very dangerous hard rock band. You know, I can't believe they all didn't end up in jail. It was just obviously an oversight by the Nixon administration that they didn't lock them. The Nixon administration tried hard. They remember some quotes from Keith where he said, I can't believe the governments are actually worried about what a rock and roll band is doing. Well, they were challenging the status quo. And Charlie was there. But at the time, it it was very subversive. Well, there is a difference. You know, there's a distinction we're not making here. There's the studio Charlie and the the live Charlie. And so much of Charlie's reputation is based on that live thing where, you know, the songs were completely unpredictable uh, from song to song and with even within the song, much less from, from night to night. Whereas in the studio working with the right producers, Charlie was a precise drummer. He could work with a producer and obviously with the band and come up with a solid drum track, you know, something that fit that drum performance, something that fit the song. And so that, you know, that was a very different case than than what, you know, the real, I think the real discussion and reputation about Charlie tends to go to the live side and this sense of wonderment of, oh my God, how did he, how did he manage to be this tremendous drummer in the chaos that could be the Rolling Stones? That's, that's exactly right. He's so unimposing with that tiny little Gretsch kit. And yet, it all it all revolves around him, in my opinion. And he'll do simple things like uh, how many drummers drummers will play not fade away and just play the Bo Diddley beat or even Satisfaction, you know, just keep it so simple. And then I always go back to uh, Bitch, too, because the, it's such a just from the very beginning of the track, they're so locked in. And uh, there's so many points, but just real quick, talking about like the John Bonham, Keith Moon thing. The cool thing about Charlie, too, is like uh, as a kid that face he's just like the ultimate weird rock star you know <laughs> in the best way fascinating guy two things that i really thought he had physically was great wrist and a great foot nobody has anything like him just the way he played it if you watch him right you know playing especially the rim I mean, the foot you hear but the wrist i've never seen another drummer even even in jazz you know blues whatever turn his wrists like Charlie did to get the sounds that he wanted. I, I think his right hand was stronger than his left hand. And that's why some of these fills came out lopsided and so unique and special. He didn't have the left hand of like Roy Haynes or Alvin Jones, one of these guys that does that, you know, just like throwing the grease on the hot pan, skittling along with the bebop song. That wasn't where he was at. I and mean, his back beat strong and his ghost notes are terrific, but he didn't have that 
exact bebop technique. So, but, but when he tried to approximate it, it came out like Charlie Watts, all this monkey man stuff and the brakes on Rip this joint. And I've been listening to it nonstop for 45 years and still trying to decipher what exactly is going on there. I still can't figure out the introduction to start me up. What's that? <laughs> that, that you can count. Yeah, no, there's something, count. take a listen. There's something very odd about the way he comes in. He doesn't come in on the beat. But yet he's on the beat. It's uh, like it's very similar to uh, and is it Little Queenie on um, uh, one of you guys? Oh no, maybe yeah, your yeah, yeah, right, right? yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, out where he, they start backwards. He starts you know with the snare drum yeah. on the one and the three, not the two and the four, and they come it's in amazing. that way. That's basically, what happens. So what he does is he adds an extra beat to the bass drum to straighten out the beat. You know, start me up. They had the you know sagacity to keep that track because it really is cool and it confounded people and i remember reading like an entire page essay explaining it and really you could just see what he does it's just he came in wrong and you've been there jim you play the drums and when you start out wrong you have two choices either add the extra beat and get it straight or stop and start again i love the little queen thing because they you know they recorded like four shows and that's the take they decided to keep was the one they fucked up at that yeah. end that's the magic <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And they finally get it together right when the singing comes in and it finally like gels, you know, it's exciting just because it's so wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think everybody, this is like one of my favorite little um, little minutiae of the Charlie Watts Rolling Stones thing on the bootleg. It's called Blind Date. It was the gig with the new Barbarians. And you can find it. It's 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 out there. It's on YouTube. So the blind, uh, the Barbarians play their thing. This is Keith's gig that he played, you know, his uh, sentence for uh, his heroin in Boston, Canada. Right, right, right. So they play and then the Stones come out and do a afterwards after the uh, new barbarians and they start doing a star star and i think mick's supposed to come in exactly the top of the one there's that little chuck berry lake and he misses it and it's obviously they can't hear each other but it's going on and it's going on and you hear keith trying to take a stab at the and it's not there and it's a disaster if there were a bar band you you would never hire them to play your bar it is like it's just the worst and then somewhere and it's, it's going on it's like for like like a minute i mean it's like horrible and then somehow Somehow figures out Charlie adds the beat when they all fall together. It's like the skies open and rainbows blue yeah. and lightning and but that, it's just absolute chaos. And I think everyone you got to listen to it, Jim. It's, it's it's incredible that they didn't will, stop start over. But when they fall together, it's like I mean, it's a real magic moment for me. I'll try to make this quick, but uh, yeah, when I was uh, my first Stone show, I was thirteen at Tattoo U tour, and it was the first show in Philadelphia of the tour. I was you know just starting to play music. My dad had a country band, so I would listen to them rehearse. And they did uh, Let It Bleed. The intro is C, F to G. And Mick was playing acoustic and he kept circling C, F, C, F, C, F. And they were like, they needed that G to get to the verse. So they actually stopped and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's start that again. And then he started again. And as a 13-year-old, I'm watching it going, wow. Like, I couldn't believe like the Stones don't rehearse. You know what I mean? But I loved it. The funny they, thing is they do rehearse and yes, they still, yes. when, you know, when they're on stage, it doesn't matter how long they rehearsed. Yeah, but I wouldn't put it past them to have rehearsed that mistake to rehearse and put it over like that. I would not put them past that. True. <laughs> so it's that element, that uncertainty that exists of where they're going that makes them exciting. Maybe in the 60s and the 70s, it made them even sound a little bit dangerous. And maybe, as Mike was saying, maybe that element isn't there. Now it's something you can bring your whole family to. But for people who are there because they really know the Stones and love it, I, I think that's still part of what makes it so exciting. Plus, you can dance to it. There are still parts of the show that do not fall together as they as they necessarily should. The difference now is you have Chuck Lavelle and yes. you know you have somebody on keyboards behind the stage. You have a lot of safety nets. Oh yeah, you know, they're not for, they're not going to mess around now. 
Yeah, not now. Not, not at this point. I did not see him on this tour, but I did watch a lot of the videos. And at the beginning, I I really could hear the difference with Steve Jordan. As it went on, it seemed like he was a little bit more integrated and he kind of caught the feel. And I know he said that his goal was to make sure that Mick had the room to be able to dance and to move around. And I think, you know, as it went on, he found his niche a little bit. But at the beginning, yeah, you could really hear the difference. And it was like, okay, I know this is the Rolling Stones or something. Just It sounds like a great rock and roll band, but what is missing from there? And the answer was Charlie. So, but let's not take anything away from Steve Jordan because he's, oh, a, no, he's, he's as good as they get. Yeah, you look please. at the Rolling Stone stage now, and this is a core of really wonderful musicians, but it's not what it was, nor can it be. I would say that from the, the Steel Wheels tour through about the mid 2000s, there was that little bit of Rolling Stones review, but I will give them credit. I think they've gotten back to basics over the last couple of tours, and I think it's been to their advantage. But we're digressing a little bit. I do want to talk about also, real quick something that Please. Daniel Lamont told me that you guys probably know already. He told me that the past few years, Monty mentioned the past couple of tours are playing better. It was Mick's insistence to start rehearsing to the records so they would actually play the records and play along to them to make sure they had, you know, the sound and the speed of, of the arrangements. I've been told the same thing. I think it shows. Yeah. I want to hear from you guys about some songs. We've talked about Bitch, Little Queenie, Star Star, Respectable, I mentioned. You know, now, when Mike and I did our show, I put together a playlist of ones that we talked about on the show that were favorite Charlie Watts licks. And what I want to do is add to that to have it accompanying this one. So what what do you feel people have got to hear if they want to really appreciate Charlie Watts? Who wants to jump in? I'll go with you. Know, so yeah, I'll get Mike. I just did a, uh, another radio show and said someone, okay, five essential Charlie Watts tracks. And I decided we've all heard Monkey Man a lot. You all know how great that is and a few of these other things. So I went to Emotional Rescue. And said, you know what? How about uh, let me go, uh, let me go? You know, yeah. and unbelievable tempo. What a groove! You know, yes. this is like, you know, I mean, it, that is the pure Charlie Watts. And the breakdowns, like the breakdowns in Little T and Hang Fire too. These kind of snare drum kind of ricochets that are just completely unpredictable. And I don't even know where you know, like they're like beamed from outer space. And to me, that's a very very pure Charlie Wattsisms right there. I mean, just to move past all the classic songs that we all know how great Brown Sugar is and Bitch is amazing. But I think there's some stuff later on. That's just, just as incredible, even while they were making crummy records. It wasn't because of Charlie Watts, you know? In yeah, fact, they kept yes. turning him up in the mix, it seemed. You know, and it goes to Voodoo Lounge. The first side of the record, is he starts every single song. It's all him because he became this great signature riff of the band, the sound of the band, which is very difficult to achieve if you're a drummer. It's like you know right away from the snare drum. That's a very high level of the game. So when you ask the essential Charlie Watts stuff, I want to point to some things that maybe people haven't heard as much. So I, I love Emotional Rescue. I think it's probably their most overlooked record. Record in the catalog, and I love. I love it too. Uh, I love it too. And I love uh, Blue and Lonesome. Okay, this accidental blues record yeah. that the shuffles are impossible. That is the thing, and I mean it's really, really groovy. It's really hard to play along with that. Just it's incredible, especially the song "Commit a Crime." I think is the jewel on there. It starts out in this sort of half shuffle, half straight beat. Like they're not even quite sure. It's very ambiguous like, in the first bar or so until it kind of lands, which is like the perfect Charlie Watts thing. And then by the end of the song, he's just wailing on that China symbol, which has no precedent in a Howling Wolf song. It's very aggressive, and it. He found context for that China symbol at a place where, you know, you know, a blues song from the late 1940s that it never, you know, I had no one thought of that before. And that, to me, that's real pure Charlie Watts. He found some jazz and something really special and something that has been run over so many times by so many mediocre bar bands. And he re really put the Charlie Watts magic dust on it. 
I will add that is one of my top three or four Rolling Stones albums of all time, which is pretty amazing considering the catalog. But I agree with you. And I would add Ride Em On Down as another one from that that you got to hear if you want to hear Charlie as absolute best. But I, it's enough from me. I want to hear from Jim Wilson, Chris, and Gary on this question. So Jim, how about you? What are some of the ones that you feel people just have to hear? Between the Buttons, to me, has some great creative drumming through the whole album. But uh, just for like the Chuck Berry style, there's that great version of Let It Rock from, is a B-side from one of the 1971 show or something like that. Had It With You from Dirty Work, uh, no bass guitar on the track and the drums are just awesome. Also, I was thinking about Oh No, Not You Again, you know, something more recent uh, or even um, uh, what's the one? Doom and Gloom, you know, Charlie's still even if the song is like B plus, the drums are just right there still delivering. I'm glad you gave a plug to had it with you. I have to cross it off of my list. It's, a, it's this amazing little song. Uh, it really gets <laughs> to the heart of what you're talking about. It's not all about being Neil Peart. It's yeah. about just that doing the right thing at the right time, leaving the space there and getting it right. Chris. Yeah, I mean, we could go back to, you know, some of the, the 60s classics. I mean, I love the drumming in uh, Get Off My Cloud and Paint It Black, of course. But, you know, since we're going into some more undiscovered gems or stuff from maybe some of their later works, I absolutely love uh, the last two minutes of How Can I Stop, which is mm-hmm. the closing track on uh, Bridges to Babylon. Most of the song, the first five minutes, relatively straightforward, but it has uh, alto saxophonist Wayne Shortner on it. If you're not familiar with the track, it's one of these like later period Keith pruning tracks like This Place is Empty or uh, Losing My Touch kind of thing. But I love the last two minutes because it allows, gives Charlie room to open up and just kind of do his thing. It may be, you know, going back to the jazz thing, it may be the jazziest thing ever on a Rolling Stones record. But I just, I love how he, how the last two minutes of that track. First five minutes are fine as well. It's a great tune. And I'm glad you brought up the older tunes too, because just something as simple as Tell Me, very simple beat, but it's always just right, not fade away. I think we talked about just some wonderful, wonderful little tunes, and he's just always there in the right place. Gary, what do you think? I always go with uh, Can You Hear Me Knocking, because he does so much. And if you ever just want to throw everybody Charlie on a buffet, here's a bunch of, of Charlie Watts drumming in this uh-huh. song and different kind of things that he does. So definitely listen amidst all that soloing, the sax and the guitar, listen to what Charlie's doing and listen to how he is making sure that song stays on track. And the other one to me is Stray Cat Blues. Uh, whether you want the studio version or the Get Your Yaya's version, the choices Charlie makes on, again, another one of those songs that you know has been heard how many times and done how many times. Another one of those songs that he's just there and you listen to what he does there and then you start to think, yeah, how could anybody have done anything different? He wasn't the same drummer at the beginning that he right. was in 1969 or 1971 or 1975 or even 1978. And all of a sudden, that's when the China symbol started coming out of nowhere. And he started doing those more weird opening the hi-hats and offbeats and stuff. And Straight Cat Blues, if you listen to it even in 1969, versus what they're doing just a couple of years later when it became much more aggressive, you know, obviously it changed. Even if you listen to Jumping Jack Flash on the studio, he's very stoic. And then if you listen to it, he's hitting all the accents and here's the China symbol. And it's like, it's really, really, you know, much more complex and, and colorful. 
than it had been. I think that's really important. And that's part of the jazz of it too, is like finding, you know, the song and letting the song breathe and finding the places where it can breathe in places where a lot of lesser musicians, you know, wouldn't find those opportunities or would overplay them. The best thing about this discussion is we could do this all day and still not come up with a complete list. You can make any number of lists and they can be right. I was just thinking of Neighbors. Neighbors has no singles. It's just, you know, the best snare sound ever. Ever. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that period where they're putting out like uh, lies, where the boys go, neighbors, uh, you know, mixed emotions, just one of these rock songs after another. Mixed emotion was later, but, you know, just one of these great songs after another. Charlie's just driving the whole thing. Yeah, those punk rock or punk rock-esque songs, which really, when you break them down, they're just country rock and roll songs. They're kind of Chuck Berry riffs, just kind of amped up, lies and where the boys go. It's fantastic. You know, it really is. The snare drum sound just kept getting crisper and louder. I mean, Neighbors is, is the extreme, of course, but even yeah. Start Me Up. I mean, that whole thing Chris Kimsey did with like, they were like sending the snare drum signal like out to the bathroom. It wasn't, you know, the echo chamber, you know, the Phil Spector's joint, you know, just sending it yeah. out to the bathroom and miking it out there off a guitar amp and Wow, what, what, what a sound. It's so aggressive. Another great one is the first few moments of Rough Justice from Bigger Bang. Not totally. a record I spend much time with, but man, it comes out of the gate like, like, like an Apollo rocket, you know, like, holy cow. Wild Horses. He plays such great stuff. And then when it comes to the guitar solo, he drops out. He doesn't even play through the guitar yeah. solo. And then when he comes back, do, 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 do. You know, it's the best. We haven't even <laughs> talked about his little hi-hat riff on uh, Angie. If I were going to go get a beer during the concert, that would be it. But his good drumming is really just punctuates it and gets very loose. It's very flowy. It's really amazing. So what I honestly think is a mediocre pop song. I wish I had written it. <laughs> if you had a minute or two to say, if we're going to talk about his legacy, I really got to make sure that I mention this or I convey this. What would it be? Chris, you look like you're ready to talk. I think I'll, I'll just share one of my favorite stories I ever heard about Charlie Watts. When uh, Hal Blaine, who is drumming legend, if the only thing he ever did was play the intro to the Ronettes, Be My Baby, he'd already be a legend. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of hundreds of songs that he, he, that he recorded as a member. He was in the, the Wrecking Crew in, in, in Los Angeles. He had his 90th birthday party, and this was only about a month or six weeks before he passed at a really famed jazz club out in Los Angeles called uh, the uh, the Baked Potato. And anybody who was anybody that was a drummer was was there. And Charlie Watts actually showed up. And being that he's a Rolling Stone, he was immediately mobbed as soon as he got there and people wanted to take pictures with him. And Charlie Watts ended up leaving probably about 10 or 15 minutes into the event because he felt so bad that he was taking the spotlight off of Hal Blaine at his birthday party. And there's not many celebrities that would actually 
want to run from the spotlight in the same way that Charlie Watts did in that in that sense. And Charlie Watts, you know, had could have stood toe to toe with any of the drummers that were in that room, but he felt, hey, you know, this is probably not the best place for me. I don't want to take spotlight off of Hal Blaine. And I just think that says a lot about how Charlie was and how a lot of people appreciate it. You know, none of us on this call, most people in this world haven't been working the same job with somebody for close to 60 years. Mick, Keith, and Charlie were in a very unique position. And there's a reason why they sometimes got along, a lot of times didn't get along, but still stuck together after all those years and, and why they thought Charlie was so important. You know, Mike wrote a book that was called the subtitle, Why Charlie Watts Matters. I don't think there's many rock and roll drummers, many musicians that you have, that you are able to say, this is why this individual matters so much to this style of music. Charlie Watts is one of the very few people that fits in that category. I just think that there was such an outpouring of love for him after he passed. You know, he obviously he was 80 years old, but it was still rather unexpected, you know, because he just seemed like a guy that the Rolling Stones are, are going to live forever. Been people that say lots of bad words about Keith, lots about Mick, a lot about Brian, you know, I don't know. I, I really never really heard anyone say anything super negative about Charlie. So Charlie's the epitome to me of the cliche, but less is more. It, it's all about taste. It's all about making the right choices. It's all about subsuming yourself for the good of the piece of music you're playing. And there are few musicians you can really say that about, even though so many of them profess to be all about that. And so I think, you know, I, the one thing I would say to anybody is that he knew exactly what to do. And it was always about the song, the album, the performance at the moment, and not about him. He put the song before himself, and that's so crucial. He understood that, that he was working for the other guys on the stage, and his responsibility was to the song, not, you know, having flashy technique and chops. And, you know, to what, what Chris was saying about Charlie being this extremely humble cat, after Charlie died, uh, I mean, I, I wrote this book, you know, I started this book well, 45 years ago, <laughs> but um, it came out a couple of years ago. And then, of course, after he died, a lot of it, it got a lot more attention. But I didn't know or I didn't have heard and heard was all these wonderful stories of how many lives Charlie Watson touched. We all know he kept the big beat on the soundtrack to our lives. And that contribution is, is inestimable. But how many people said, oh, yeah, he came to my gig or he did me a favor or, you know, he loaned me a drum key you know, at the Blue Note one night. So many people had these stories about how warm for a guy that has this reputation of being kind of reclusive and going off to his farm and not really being around much between tours and not really like hanging around between gigs. How many people had great stories about how warm he was and, and, and he put smiles on people's faces. So what's the legacy? I mean, I, I can't dig much deeper than he was the drummer of the world's greatest Rolling Stones, world's greatest rock and roll band. That's a pretty good line for any obituary. But uh, beyond that, there was a, a real humanity to him. And I think that's part of who he is and really about why he, he, he's such a great, great drummer. Yeah, humanity. I don't think there's another word for it. Like I say, you could learn how to play like Neil Peart. You could do it. You could sit down and learn those parts. And if you go on YouTube and say how to play like Neil Peart, you're going to get about 10,000 guys playing Tom Sawyer perfectly in their bedrooms. But try to find out how to play like Charlie Watts. And there's almost nothing because he can't. Okay. It's just too much poetry. It's just too much, too dynamic. It's not something you can learn. It's only something you can live with. I'll just give you a couple of thoughts that I have. As somebody who's a drummer himself and who's played in different, you know, with different people, he really taught me two things. One is to always put the band first. And I think you guys have all said that, that it's all about, it's not about the individual. It's not about showing off your chops. It's about making sure it sounds right for the band. And the second thing is he told me that it was okay to explore your own style. 
that you mm-hmm. didn't have to be like this drummer or that drummer. You had to find what worked for you. And cause that's what he did. And to me, uh, that's the musical legacy of Charlie Watts. I want to give Jim the, the last word here, but Jim over to you. I love it. All I can add is, uh, that we still do not know a world without the Rolling Stones. So I think that even as time goes on, when there is a day that we don't have the Rolling Stones, then as a music lover, something Michael Jackson always said, no, no matter what's music or film, if you're a fan and you're, you know, study the greats. So when it comes down to it, you, you cannot deny the Rolling Stones and Charlie Watts is a huge part of the Rolling Stones. I mean, I'll share that. Uh, so back when they toured in 2005 here in Detroit, they were playing a stadium one night and the night before uh, Tim Reese was playing a jazz show at a, a small venue. The uh, Detroit Symphony Orchestra had a little small venue in their place that they hosted jazz uh, jazz night. So Bernard Fowler was singing. Daryl Jones was playing bass. It was Stones-ish, but, you know, Lo, lo and behold, not unexpectedly, but, you know, maybe 45 minutes into the set, Charlie walks in and, you know, his nice leather jacket, takes it off impeccably, lays it, you know, by the side, plays a couple of songs, plays them perfectly, waves to everybody and, and walks off. And it was a demonstration to me, really, of everything. Everybody just said that humanity, that taste. Uh, you know, just both the playing, but also his comportment that night. You know, you could you could tell what a true gent uh, this guy was, but also a guy who loved what he did enough to take a night off and, you know, come play with some of his pals and play a little jazz. We saw him at the Iridium in New York a number of years ago. And yeah. Keith was in the, this is how long ago it was, Keith was in the audience and I had one of the, you know, my phone was a kind of a new thing and the battery had run out, so I didn't get any pictures. But anyway, your words are, are really beautiful. Charlie's the only Rolling Stone that made solo records that are beyond criticism. Even listening to the Keith, you kind of, after a little while, okay, why aren't I listening to the Rolling Stones? But, you know, <laughs> Charlie, I, you know, I, I get it. It's not like the Max Roach and Charlie Parker band. It's not that, but it's wonderful and it's good. And even being in the Rolling Stones couldn't stop him from leaving, living his dream. That's love. That's it. That's all it is. It was just out of love, yeah. you know? And Rock, Rocket 88, too. That's a good record. Oh yeah, yeah. Boogie, boogie, his boogie woogie band. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Check that stuff on you. I mean, his, that's when you really see his his right hand swinging. I mean, two hours of the Rolling Stones is one thing, but playing with that boogie woogie band, cooking Iron yeah. Man. Yeah, you guys are fantastic. It was great. Thank you, gentlemen. This was a terrific conversation. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, guys. Thank All right, you. thank you. I'm a fan of everybody nice here. Honored to be part of it. Thank you. Great guys. company to be in. Was indeed. Could I stop? Could I stop?